0: to this topic. So I stand here before you this morning, not as one who has arrived, not as one who has this aspect of his Christian life all squared away, but as a fellow pursuer of Christ who has had his share of failures, but by the grace of God, I get up and I go on. And I desire very, very much to be dedicated to prayer. I desire it. A couple of weeks ago, I was away at a convention and one of the keynote speakers was speaking one of those mornings of the convention. And he was waxing away and it was early in the morning and I have to confess, I was sort of half listening. And then he made a statement from the scriptures from the Old Testament that my ears perked up at. And I thought to myself, he's not using that text correctly. And so then for the next couple of minutes my thoughts were occupied by what does the text really mean and how should he really be using it so I found myself sitting there critiquing his preaching And then he went on to say something that completely reoriented my thinking He said this man, a former missionary for a decade and now a president of a Bible college, he said, you know, when I was in the mission field and I look back, I, I, I have one deep regret. He said, my deep regret is that I was so busy that I did not spend the amount of time in prayer that I should have spent. And that by the grace of God, here in this responsibilities as a president of a Bible college where my responsibilities and and the calls on my time are even greater than they were in the mission field, I have determined by the grace of God to resolve that and not to continue to look back on my life with regrets and say, I didn't pray enough. And then he said something else that really struck me. It was like a bombshell that hit me. He said, have you ever noticed... When you're reading through the Gospels. That Jesus's shortest prayers are his public prayers. And his longest prayers are his private prayers. The bigger the crowd, the shorter the prayer. The smaller the crowd, the longer the prayer. And then he said, how unlike Christ. I had found myself. And God just convicted me. He convicted me over that. I thought about my own life and I and I began to evaluate by the spirit of God, my own prayer life and how indeed it was so unlike Jesus Christ. That the private times were not long and extended. Jesus prayed all night. And I was wounded. I was wounded deeply. Spirit of God, He wounds and He heals. He wounds and He heals. And so when that session ended, I went for a walk in the parking lot and walked up and down the rows of cars. And God and I had a long talk. And I left the parking lot with a renewed vigor to make prayer a greater portion of my life, to make changes in my schedule the busyness of my own life, to to rearrange things so that Christ was not being squeezed out in this most vital aspect. It's been a couple of weeks. God has been very gracious with me, and I'm still working at it. I'm working at it. By the way, this kind of points to the beauty of expository preaching. You know that. One of the beauties of expository preaching is that you don't go looking for conviction. It comes looking for you. There are many topics that I can tell you, I would not stand up here and preach to you. Last week's sermon, by the way, was one of them. I don't sit in my office and think about, okay, how can I come up with something to offend the most number of people? We're committed to an exposition of the book of Romans, right? So as we move through the book of Romans, we have to deal with what it says, not what we'd like it to say. And so as we deal faithfully with what the text has to say, we are brought face to face with the most uncomfortable and sometimes the most controversial topics. I mean, the whole discussion about proper respect to a very unpopular government is not something I would go looking for. It came looking for me. Preaching through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 dramatically transformed my thinking, the thinking of the elders, and I I trust your thinking too, with regard to our obligations to the people of Israel in the planting of churches, Jewish evangelism. I mean, if they are still near and dear to God's heart, then they must be near and dear to ours, and, and thus we have undertaken to support of a jewish church planting missionary. And where does that come from? It, it comes from the scriptures. It comes out of the scriptures. And so here we are this morning to talk about prayer and in particular prayer for our governmental leaders. It has been thrust upon us. Been thrust upon us. And so from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this morning, what I want to do with you is to highlight two aspects of prayer. There's two aspects of prayer for our leaders as an outworking of Paul's mandate for Christian citizenship. That's where we're going this morning. Now, before we look at these two aspects, we should probably create a little bit of context, a little background. What's going on here in 1st Timothy? Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. That young man, and by this time probably in his 40s, over whom Paul had perhaps the greatest influence in his own personal discipling. And so he sends faithful Timothy to the strategic city of Ephesus in order to shepherd and pastor the church there a church that's having a lot of problems. In fact, if you'll just turn back to chapter 1 for a moment, look at your eyes, go down to verse 3. Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths And endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And so the church at Ephesus is being torn up by false teaching. And Paul sends Timothy there to to put things in order to make it right, to straighten it out, to preach truth. In fact, over in chapter 3... Paul says, verse 14, chapter 3, Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so this letter from Paul to Timothy is dealing with life in the church. And in particular, it's dealing with life in the public aspects of the church it's concerning itself with how does the church operate in a public setting what kind of teaching comes across from the pulpit what kind of, of of things should be done in a worship service what should not be done and what should be done and paul speaks of all of this in this particular epistle the context is public worship and it's really interesting at the end of Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Then there's a little parenthetical statement there about Hymenaeus and Alexander. And then he picks it up in the verse 1 of chapter 2. And notice that he says there, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and so forth. It's interesting to me because Paul is addressing how the church is to operate in a public gathering. And he says the first and most important thing that a church should concern itself with in a public gathering is its prayer life. How does the church pray? First of all, then, he says... First, in, in order of priority, Timothy, we need to straighten out how the church is praying. Not privately, not in their prayer closets at home, but publicly as they gather together. What is their prayer like and what should be? Notice, you see this verse 8, chapter 2. He comes back to it again. He says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And on he goes. Prayer Public prayer in the gathering of the assembly is very much the context of chapter 2, the early part. So it's all about prayer. What should our prayer be like when we gather together on a Sunday morning together? What should our prayer be like? So there are two aspects. As I said, there are two aspects here in just the first couple of verses that we can look at together. The first aspect is the character of our prayer. That's verse 1 in the first part of verse 2. The character of our prayer. What should be the character of our prayer for our leaders? What should should characterize it? What should it be like? According to this text, there's really a twofold description here. Twofold description is variety and specificity. Let me just read the verse first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority. Stop right there so there are there are a twofold part of this aspect, this character of prayer, and it begins with variety. you see it there there, there are four. Descriptions of prayer given. Treaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Now, these are somewhat synonymous terms. They're not identical terms, but they are somewhat synonymous terms. They're piled up piled up here. And I I think one of the reasons they're piled up is because Paul wants Timothy and the church to understand the importance of prayer. And so he he piles up several terms for prayer. But there are some differences in the terms. And it's probably worth just briefly at least looking at what some of those differences are. And it it gives us a, a little bit fuller understanding of what our public prayer is supposed to look like. So he says, I, first of all, then I urge that entreaties, entreaties be made. Now, this word entreaties comes from a, a Greek verb that means to need, to need. And thus, the noun form is an expression of our needs, voicing our needs. Supplications would be another way to translate this term as well. Entreaties, the expression of our needs. Next, Paul says, I urge that entreaties and prayers. Here, a very general term for prayers. Always spoken to God. Could be private, could be public. Just a very generic term to scoop up the concept of prayer. So entreaties and prayers. And petitions, he says, Petition is an interesting word used only twice here in the New Testament, and, and it suggests the idea of prayer as a conversation. A conversation. Perhaps pointing to public prayer not as some written out formality to be read, but more as a free flowing conversation between the people of God and their Savior in a public setting. So, a conversation. The idea is that we come boldly into the presence of God. We have an audience with God and we speak with God conversationally. Entreaties, prayers, petitions. Then finally, notice the word thanksgivings. This one is different than the other three. The other three are more grouped together. This one stands out a little bit. Thanksgivings. The giving of thanks is an integral part of prayer. It's an integral part of prayer. No matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we always are receiving better than we deserve. Do you understand that? No matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we always are receiving better than we deserve. And thus, there is always a basis for us to offer thanksgiving. We deserve what? Speak to me. We deserve what? We deserve hell. We deserve hell. And so anything short of that is the abundant mercy and grace of God poured out on us. So regardless of our circumstances, there is always a place to thank God. There is always something to thank God for. It's interesting, just reflecting on this term for Thanksgiving here, one commentator writes that his observation, Thanksgiving, quoting him, will be the only form of prayer... to persist persist even in heaven. Interesting thought. All other forms of prayer pass away when we pass into the presence of God, except Thanksgiving. And we will be consumed for eternity in Thanksgiving. Because we will for eternity remain sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. There will always be something to thank God for throughout eternity. So we ought to be busy, engaged in that kind of behavior here and now, right? Let's get, let's get warmed up for it. Thanksgiving. Paul says, by the way, over in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice he says in everything by prayer, supplication and thanksgiving, thanksgiving. So I urge, first of all, number one priority, most important thing as we begin together in public worship is that entreaties, prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. That is the variety of prayer. Now the specificity of it. The specificity. Behalf of all men and for kings and all who are in authority. Do you see that? He starts with a very wide sweep. They are be made for all men and then narrows it down and says specifically for these kinds of men. Those who are kings and those who are in authority over us. The, th- the flow of thought is that we as the people of God are to pray on behalf of Mankind, we to have a heart that is big enough to encompass. Circumstances outside of ourselves. But we are also to have a focus. Upon government. I mean, if we are to we are to pray for all kinds of people, and that's the idea here at the end of verse one on behalf of all kinds of men. What kinds of men, Paul? How about kings and those in authority? How about Nero, believers? How about if you pray for him? He who is the greatest threat to your safety. He who, who represents the greatest threat to your well-being. Pray for him because if you will pray for him, then you will pray for all men. Say, so if, we'll, if we'll pray for the guy who's out to get us, then we'll pray for others as well. God is sovereign, is that true? God rules over the affairs of men, is that true? When we engage in public prayer, we demonstrate the truthfulness of that theological assertion. When we engage together in prayer and and do so for all men and, and in particular, those who are in leadership over us, we are saying that we believe God can and will do something. John Stott, in reflecting on these verses, writes the following, and I quote, Some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine. And that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. Stott writes, I came away saddened. Sensing that this church worshipped a little village God of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Wow, what an indictment. Do we really believe that God can do something about stuff over there? I mean, we know that he he's at work in our lives. Is that true. I think you all have, can give personal testimony of the grace of God in your life and things that He's been doing. But do you think God can really do stuff on the other side of the world? Do you really think that He can save people in the 1040 window? Korea? North Korea? Can He save people there? How about China? How about Japan? How about India? How about Afghanistan? Iraq? You name them. Can God really do something over there? Or is he just an American God? What about over there in Washington, D.C.? Can he do anything over there? I didn't clear this with my wife, but she'll forgive me because she's a Christian and she has to. It just occurred to me. About 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago now, we were living in Texas. I was working at that time for Bank of America, we'll call it that. And my job was being eliminated and had an opportunity to move to Southern California. But my wife was not really excited about coming to Southern California because she wasn't sure there were any Christians in Southern California. We weren't sure that God really, you know, will operate on the other side of the Rocky Mountains was the issue. We were positive that he was in Dallas for it is the belt, you know, is the buckle of the Bible belt. So God's there for sure. But we weren't so sure about here. Well, here we are, and he's here. And he's in and among you and me. We don't worship a local tribal deity, and yet many times that's how we act when it comes to our prayer lives. We pray for our children. We pray for our our families. we, We pray for a few associates that we're concerned about. We pray for some things at our church. But that's about it. We don't go much wider than that. We don't think wider than that. But God is at work. Amen? And so we need to engage in the work that He's doing, and we do that through prayer. The breadth of our prayer reveals the depth of our faith. If you'd like to write it down, you may. I made it up. I think it's true. The breadth of our prayer reveals the depth of our faith. When our prayer is narrow and focused only on those few people that we're close to, what we're really communicating is that our faith is pretty narrow, pretty focused, and pretty shallow. But it's when we begin to embrace uh, the greater things that God is doing that our faith begins to grow deeper, stronger. There's variety, Paul says, verse 1, to our prayer. There is a specificity to it as well. It is for all men, but it is specifically for kings and those who are in authority. This challenges us. I mean, do we really believe that if we pray, it will make any difference in what goes on in Washington? Do we think it might? The character of our prayer, first aspect. Second aspect, the content of our prayer. The content of our prayer. What would Paul have us pray for in regard to our governmental authorities? What is it that he would have us pray in regard to our governmental authorities? Well, there are really two. Two significant prayer items that he gives to us here. The first is for civil peace. It's the second half of verse 2. And then from a general context, conversion. Conversion. So let's look first at civil peace here. The second half of verse 2. Pray on behalf of all men, literally on behalf of kings and all who are in authority. Here it is now. In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Purpose clause, by the way, here. Do you see it? In order that, take a look at that. That's a purpose clause. Why are we to pray for kings and and those who are in authority? So that, in order that, purpose clause results in us leading a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We are to pray for them so that we might experience civil peace. It's as simple as that. So that we might experience civil peace. Peace. We are to pray for our leaders. We are to pray for them, that they would have wisdom, that they would have knowledge, that they would have character, that they would have integrity, that they would make decisions based on wisdom, that they would make decisions that that promote peace. That our nation would not be characterized by anarchy and violence and injustice and economic hardships. We are to pray for all of these kinds of topics. We're to pray that our leaders would would rule in such a way that the nation would benefit from their rulership. That we as believers would be able to meet together peacefully without fear of harassment or threat. This is what we are to pray. No persecution. We are to pray. We are to pray these blessings. We are to ask God for them and we are to thank God when we receive them. To apply what Paul says in verse 1. Ask God. Entreat God. Petition God. And thank God. Thank Him, by the way, that you live where you live. Thank Him that you woke up this morning in the United States of America and you didn't worry about coming here to gather together, there was no threat on your life at all. Thank Him. For there are many brothers and sisters in Christ who do not experience that blessing. Beloved, we've learned the basic benefit of good government is peace. Isn't that right? It is peace. It is the the absence of war, and it is the absence of internal strife. This is what government has been given by God to do. So we need to pray for them that they do their job well. And by the way, let me just say this. Let's not give in to this foolish and shallow notion that what we really need around here is a little bit of persecution. That'll really make the gospel go. That's an idiotic statement. Spoken by one who has absolutely no understanding of what persecution is all about. So let's not say that, okay? God in his sovereignty allows persecution in certain places and it is in his providential rule. And we don't understand the hows and whys of it, but we are to pray for peace. Look at the text again, that we may live a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We are to pray for peace. If God chooses to give persecution, he will give grace to endure it. Well, we are to pray for peace and we are to pray for peace because it is an environment and context of peace in which the gospel runs. It goes. Simple review of the book of Acts reveals that. It is the Roman government in the book of Acts that provides the ability for the gospel to run from one end of the empire to the other. It is the Pax Romana. It is the Roman peace. By the way, it's interesting. God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. The nation has been taken away into captivity. God speaks to Jeremiah and he says the following to him. Rather interesting. He says to Jeremiah to speak to the people of Israel in captivity. He says, captives, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf For in its welfare, you will have welfare. You have been captured by the Babylonians. You have been taken away into bondage. Pray for your captors that things go well in that society. Because as they go well in that society, it will go well for you. That's the idea. We're to pray for peace and prosperity in the land. You know, there's a temptation. I just have to address this. There is a temptation when we dislike whoever is in political leadership over us to want them to fail. To want them to mess up so that when the next election comes around, they get voted out of office because we don't like them. In its more perverse form, we could even begin to secretly hope the stock market continues to tank and that unemployment continues to remain high so that the president's popularity continues to remain low so that he doesn't get reelected. That's perverse thinking. If you find yourself walking down that path, stop, go back. Pray for the peace of the nation. Pray for prosperity to come upon us. Pray for a reduction in the unemployment rate that your neighbors and friends and even family members might find work. Pray for these things. We have a massive economic rebound and the president is elected to another term. Rejoice in God's providence. Rejoice in his providence call on your god to open his hands of mercy and grace and pour it out upon your neighbors pray for civil peace but that's not all running through this section there is a there's a strong background of conversion Verse four, God desires all men to be saved, it says, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is verse five, one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Conversion is very much on the mind of the Apostle Paul with regard to our public prayers. So we are to pray for civil peace, but we are to pray for conversion. Conversion. Look at verse 3 for a moment. Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. What's the antecedent to this, the pronoun this? What is it in a reference to? It's actually a reference back to verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, right? So we are to pray for the salvation of the lost, our prayers, our public prayers are to gather up and capture a passion for the lost, a, a passion that God has. God desires it, he says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God when we begin to see the world as He sees it. We are to pray for the salvation of all kinds of men, mankind. We are to have a worldwide missionary. Focus to our prayer. But beyond that, we are to pray specifically for the salvation of kings and all who are in authority. The first part of verse 2. So we are to pray for civil peace, but we are to pray for the conversion of our leaders. This is good. This is acceptable in the sight of God. And we have been negligent in this. We have been negligent in this, and I take responsibility for that. And I ask your forgiveness. For as I have failed, we have failed. We have not made it a regular part of our public prayer together to pray for the conversion of the lost. And in particular, we have not prayed for the conversion of those in governmental authority over us. We have ignored them. And so as we close our time together this morning, I think the best way to apply this sermon is to pray, is to pray. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and to bow your heads and to fight the heat and the fatigue that would cause you to zone out. And let me lead us in a time of public prayer on behalf of our president. I will pray according to the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. Let's pray. O God, O God our Father, we do begin by proclaiming our adoration for You. For the gospel of grace that You have poured forth and of which we are recipients. Oh, you are the sovereign one, oh God, creator of heaven and earth. You alone are the one worthy to be worshipped. And someday all of creation will indeed do just that. Our Father, for reasons known only to you and the mystery of your providence, this race has been plunged into ruin. When Adam took that forbidden fruit, he died and we died with him. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Rebellion against our sovereign Lord and worthy of eternal condemnation. But, O Lord, you left us not in this condition. You sent forth your own Son. You sent a Savior into the world That he might redeem us. And indeed we have been redeemed. Oh praise your name. Lord God our Savior. And we confess our father. At this time. We confess the sin. Of our prayerlessness. We confess our father that our time of public prayer has not. Embraced the things for which you have set it forth. That we have been narrow and we have been parochial. And we have even to a degree been partisan in our prayer. We have not embraced your saving purposes for this world. Our vision has been too small. Our hearts too hard. Our faith too shallow. O oh Lord. We confess That we love not enough. We ask your help. We ask your forgiveness. We ask, O Lord, that you would cleanse us and enable us to change our direction. O Lord, we thank you that we live here in the United States of America at this time. And in this place, we thank you, our father, for the many privileges that we enjoy, for the attendant freedoms that are ours. Oh, Lord, you have blessed us with an abundance of material wealth. You have embraced, blessed us with the ability to speak freely in public. You have blessed us with the ability to proclaim the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ without fear. Of authorities. O oh Lord, you have blessed us with a treasure beyond measure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, our Father, we do come before you on behalf of our President Barack Obama. O oh Lord, we ask on behalf of this man that you would grant him wisdom in the decisions that face Him, the pressures that are upon Him. Oh Lord, the issues being discussed and decided upon, even now, will affect generations to come. Oh Father, as the leaders of this nation, the Congress and President and beyond, wrestle with issues of health care and how to pay for it and immigration, and and what to do about it. The war with radical Islam that enters its second decade and grinds on and on. Oh, Lord, give wisdom that they would make decisions that would be right and true and just. Give stamina, our Father, to endure the long work days, to think clearly, to handle the weight of responsibility. O oh, Lord, we watch our presidents enter office, spry in their steps, and we watch them leave, and their hair is turned white, and their face is drawn, and the pressures they have felt have sapped the life from them. O oh, Lord, strengthen them. Protect them, O oh, Lord. Our Father, protect this man from those who have murder in their hearts those who would seek to kill him for some perverse and distorted political purpose oh god protect him and his family protect them as well from ungodly advice oh lord those who seek his ear those who who seek Favor from him who would try to pervert government for their own benefit. O Lord, help him to be discerning. Let not the advisors lead him in a path of unrighteousness, O Lord. Surround him with men and women who will speak not what he wants to hear, but what he must hear. Grant him humility, O Lord. Grant him to understand that power corrupts. That there is a corrosive effect. That he is in office only by an expression of your providential will. And he could be removed just as easily. Oh, Lord, let him not think of himself as sovereign. Let him understand that you are sovereign. Help him, oh, Lord not to think more highly of himself. Oh, Father, he is surrounded by people who will inflate his ego, who will puff up his pride, who will tell him things that aren't true. That they might gain his favor for their own means. Oh, Lord, I pray for President Obama and his relationship to his wife. Oh, Father, help him to be a loving husband. Help him to serve her, to care for her, to be tender with her. His children, two girls, oh, Lord, to be raised with life in a goldfish bowl. Every every step you take, every move you make, everything you say scrutinized and turned against you by your enemies. Oh, Lord, guard his family. Guard his relationship with his wife and children. The Lord, we, we pray for his salvation. We ask, O oh God, that you would save his soul. Our Father, strengthen our faith in this matter. For flickers of doubt go through our minds. We think perhaps he is beyond the grace of God. O oh Lord, forgive us. For you have saved us, and there is none more unworthy of salvation, our Father, than us. O Lord, your arm is not short; your hand is not weak. May you open his eyes to the truth. His wife, his children, as well. Give boldness, O Lord, to to those who know the gospel of Jesus Christ, who. Are in his orbit. Those whom he meets. Perhaps workers in the White House. Perhaps members of his administration. Oh Lord, grant them boldness. Grant them to be loving and gracious and kind. To seize the opportunity to preach the gospel and to live it. Their lives would back up their testimonies. Oh, Lord God, do something mighty, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the one mediator between God and man, who gave himself as a ransom for all, Amen. It's hot, beloved, I know. Thank you for your attendance. Thank you for your attentiveness. May we move forward from this day embracing the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simon, come sing with us. Open your Bibles up to First Timothy chapter two. That's right. You heard it correctly. First Timothy chapter two. That's in the New Testament. Page eleven hundred and eighty-seven. I know your Bibles fall open naturally to the book of Romans. Probably broken the binding there by now, but we're going to take you to 1 Timothy this morning. And the reason we're going there is we are finishing out this section, really, of Romans. So this sermon is still connected to our series in Romans, in particular, Romans chapter 13, and our continuing discussion of our role as Christian citizens with regard to our government. We have been looking at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13 for a couple of months now. And we have noted there that we are, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed in our thinking and hearts by the Spirit of God to live in submission to the governing authorities that God has put over us. We have also learned there that we are under obligation to pay our taxes because it is right and good that we do so for it is the means by which the governments that God has established are funded, and therefore it is an act of faith to pay one's taxes. Last week we were challenged, really, with a third component of what it means to submit to the governing authorities, and that is that we were to esteem our leaders. We are to honor them, we are to respect them, we are to speak respectfully about them and to them. And this morning we come back and we close out this whole section with regard to our relationship to governing authorities with a final command, and that is that we are to pray for our leaders. We are to pray for our leaders. You know, prayer is the most talked about and the least practiced discipline of the Christian life. You realize that, don't you? I'm sure there's not a person in this room who wouldn't answer the question this way, if I said, are you satisfied with your prayer life? Do you pray enough? We would all answer, how? No. We don't. We know prayer is important. We acknowledge it to be important, and yet we don't practice it at the level commensurate with our speech. We don't. You know, how we... Pray reveals a lot about what we believe about God. Did you know that? How we pray reveals a lot about what we believe about God. That is, the presence of biblical prayer demonstrates that we believe God is sovereign and can and is willing to do something about the circumstances of life. An absence of prayer says that God doesn't really care or he can't do anything anyway or I've got it handled and I don't need him. So our participation in prayer really reveals our theology. Foothill Bible Church seeks by the grace of God to pursue and build this ministry on five core values. Do you know what they are? If you look at the bottom of your worship bulletin they are written there. They are written there by the way every week. They are written there every week. By God's grace, we are to be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are determined to obey the Bible. We are dedicated to prayer. We are daring to minister by faith. And we are developing disciples to reach the nations. This is what we are about. This is what drives us. And yet, as we begin this study together this morning, a study of prayer, I need to begin by just telling you that this is the most difficult area of my life. Persistence in prayer is the most difficult aspect of my Christian life, and it is the place where I have the greatest failures. This is the place I fall down the most. And I'm not alone, am I? I think you can identify with me this morning. And so as I preach to you this morning, understand that I am preaching to myself and I have been preaching to myself for the last few weeks with regard.